If you have your Bibles, uh, grab them at this point in time and uh, turn with me to the book of Malachi as we continue in our sermon series, Half-Hearted. Uh, Malachi, we find ourselves uh, in chapter 2 this morning, chapter 2, verses 10 through 16. As uh, we continue on in Half-Hearted, we find ourselves in the third of six disputes in the book of Malachi. Malachi chapter 2, starting in verse 10. I trust you're there. If you don't have your own Bible, you can follow along uh, uh, in, uh, on the screen behind me. Let's pray, and we'll dive in. Father, we pray that you would bless the hearing and the teaching and the preaching of your word, that it would be well-pleasing to you, Father, that you would help us to be not half-hearted uh, in our worship and in our, our, our obedience and in our sacrifice to you, but that we would be uh, completely and utterly, uh, wholeheartedly uh, obedient and uh, in love with you. And so help us, we pray, as we're challenged, uh, particularly this morning, to be faithful to you and our covenant that we have entered into for those of us who have believed in Jesus Christ, uh, this wonderful new covenant that you've provided for us. May we be faithful uh, to that covenant uh, by pursuing a, a living for you and, and knowing you uh, and delighting in you. And then we, may we be faithful, Father, for those of us who are married uh, to that marriage covenant, those vows that we have made to you so that you may, be, uh, may receive glory and honor and that your church may be built up. We ask it in the name of Christ and God's people together said, Amen. You know, there was a story told of uh, an elderly couple, and they had been married for 50 years. And so, of course, they threw a rather large and uh, extravagant banquet at their home with all of their friends and family. And uh, after a wonderful night of celebration, all of the friends and family and guests were gone. Ted and Bessie sat on the front porch swing, enjoying some uh, time alone. Ted, who had lost uh, much of his hearing throughout the years, said to his wife, uh, excuse me, uh, looked at his wife and uh, held her hand and grabbed, uh, grabbed her and snuggled, snuggled close. Of course, she appreciated that. And she turned to him somewhat in, in amazement and wonder and said, you know, Ted, I'm real proud of you. And Ted took her hand and looked into her eyes. And after a moment's uh, look, kind of befuddled and Rather confused, he said, Well, Bessie, I'm real tired of you too. (laughs) You know, today in the third dispute that we get in this book of Malachi, we see that God addresses particularly the men. He addresses the men in his old covenant community, the, the nation of Israel, who had, like Ted, grown tired of their wives. But unlike Ted... They had divorced their wives in order to marry other women who were both foreigners and idol worshipers. And to them, and to the men of God's new covenant community today, and all of us, Malachi is going to tell us, be faithful. First of all, be faithful to God. And second of all, be faithful to your spouse. So let's begin with the charge. If you remember, uh, most of Malachi has a very familiar uh, refrain. There is a charge by God through Malachi to the people. Then there uh, is a cross-examination of that. And then there is a confirmation of that charge. And we begin in chapter 2, verse 10, with God's charge to the people. It's a general charge, and it's a charge that they were being unfaithful. The dispute begins when Malachi gives this kind of overarching charge against his covenant people. Notice verse 10. Do we not all have one father? Malachi asks his people. Do we not have, all have one father? Did not one God create us? 
See, Malachi begins by asking two rhetorical questions. And those questions were meant to drive home one simple point. He's making this point to the covenant people of God. He's saying being a part of God's chosen covenant family comes both with rights as well as responsibilities. And some of those responsibilities are responsibilities to other people in that covenant. Since each Israelite, he argues, had one heavenly father, one God who created each of them, there should be sibling loyalty amongst them. It's, it's, it's kind of like this. If I see my kids fighting and they're hitting and screaming and kicking, it might be, uh, I would play like Malachi and I would, uh, I would say, hey, kids, 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 stop, stop. Come over here, come over here. And they would come and, and I'd say, listen to me. I am all of your daddies, right? I'm your daddy and I'm your daddy and I'm your daddy and, and I'm your daddy. And that, what does that make each of you? And if they were smart, they would say, that makes us brothers and sisters, right? That makes, that makes her my brother. Well, that makes him my sister. And I would say, that's right, right? I am your daddy, and you are now brothers and sisters. And so being, uh, being right with me as your daddy means treating your brothers and sisters rightly. There are responsibilities here that we have as a part of the family of God. That's what Malachi is driving home in these initial two questions. But there's a third question that he asks, because they were not being faithful either to their uh, covenant with God, and they were not being faithful to their covenant with one another. Notice the third question. Malachi then says, Why do we profane the covenant of our ancestors by being unfaithful to one another? Right? So notice, there is a double charge of unfaithfulness. There is a, a two charge, a, a two accusations of, of unfaithfulness, two covenants that were being broken. The first one is that they were being unfaithful to their covenant with God, right? Notice, why do we profane the covenant of our ancestors? That's referring to the old covenant, the Mosaic law, the covenant that every Israelite had entered into a relationship with their God. He says, first of all, why are we being unfaithful to God? Well, how were they being unfaithful to God? Notice the rest of the verse. By being unfaithful to one another. So they were being unfaithful to their covenant with God. But then he says, and here's how. Some of you are being unfaithful to your covenant with one another. What covenant might that be? Well, we're going to see in just a a minute that he is referring here to the marriage covenant. And this kind of sets up the rest of our passage for us. So structurally, in verses 11 and 12, Malachi first is going to give confirmation that the, the people have been unfaithful to their covenant with God. And he's going to spell out how they had done that. So after showing here is how you are unfaithful in your covenant with God, then he's going to move to their covenant with one another in verses 13 through 16. He's going to say, here's how some of you then have been unfaithful to one another. Unfaithful to your covenant with God, unfaithful to your covenant with one another. So let's begin with kind of the first confirmation in verses 11 through 12. And we get the crime first, the crime first, marriage to unbelievers in verse 11 of chapter 2. The section begins with Malachi spelling out. He's going to tell them how they had been unfaithful, right? He's going to spell out how the people had been marrying unbelievers. Notice verse 11. Judah, he says, has been unfaithful. A detestable thing has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. Well, what is that? He's going to tell us. Judah has desecrated the sanctuary, literally, the holiness the Lord loves. And here's how. By marrying women who worship a foreign god. So what was going on here? Malachi begins, and he says, some of you 
have been unfaithful to your covenant with me as your creator God. And you have been unfaithful to me because you are pursuing marriages with people who are outside of the covenant. You are pursuing marriages of women, particularly in this instance, who worship a foreign god. That is, they were pagan. They were idolaters. They did not have a relationship with the real and true living God. See, God in his covenant with Israel in the Old Testament, in places like Deuteronomy uh, chapter 7, Exodus chapter 34, uh, Joshua 23, and in other places had specifically said to his covenant people, when you enter into marriage, don't marry the Canaanite people. Now, God's not just being mean to the Canaanite people because the Canaanite people were idolaters, right? They did not recognize and worship the one true God. And so God says, avoid marriage to Canaanite people because he knew inevitably it would foster idolatry among the people of God. And then the people of God would then be led away from himself. And yet this is exactly what was happening after the exile. After God's people had returned from Babylon, many of the men were pursuing pagan foreign wives, which is incredible because it, they knew it would lead to idolatry. And ask yourself, why were they in exile in the first place? It was because of idolatry. And so here we have the cycle coming again. And so God sends Malachi to say, this is, this is not right. You're breaking your covenant with me. You're not supposed to be marrying unbelievers, and yet you are. So he begins with the crime in verse 11, but there is a consequence. There is a possible consequence, a consequence of that crime, and we see it in verse 12. The consequence of excommunication. Notice verse 12. He says, as for the man who does this, whoever he may be, May the Lord remove him from the tents of Jacob, even though he brings an offering to the Lord Almighty. Here Malachi offers a prayer. In Hebrew, it's prayer language. He's saying, God, would you excommunicate from the covenant people of God the guilty members within the covenant community? And notice, he says, may this happen despite any offerings, any sacrifices that they may bring to the altar of the Lord. Malachi is saying, listen, pious religious activity doesn't cover for premeditated rebellious activity, right? He says, it's not going to cover you. May they be excommunicated. And so in verses 11 and verse 12, we have this first confirmation. And from that, we get our first principle or our first lesson of the day. And I think it's a clear one, both from the Old Testament and the New. And that is this, we should both date and marry within the family of God. We should date and we should marry people, men and women, from within the family of God. See, just as God's old covenant people, the nation of Israel, were not permitted to marry those who did not share their faith with the one true God, so God's people today, the church, those of us who are under, who are under the new covenant, are also commanded to not marry those who are not believers. We see it very clearly in a passage in 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians verse, uh, chapter 6, verses 11 through 16, tell us this. Paul says, Do not be yoked together with unbelievers. For what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or what fellowship can light have with darkness? What harmony is there between Christ and Belial? Or what does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? And so when a Christian uh, marries an unbeliever, a non-Christian, there is a disunity at the deepest and most fundamental, important level of their marriage the spiritual level. And of course, that will affect the marriage relationship in all sorts of negative ways. And so let me begin to apply this. First of all, those of you who are single, you are not yet married, particularly teenagers, uh, listen up. 
here's my pastoral, youth pastoral advice to you. I've told students in my youth group again, again, and, and again, and I will tell you again, and again, and again, and again. If you can't find a genuine growing Christian to date, then don't date. Yes, I said it. Don't date. Listen, it's not the end of the world if you don't have a boyfriend. It's not the end of the world if you don't have a girlfriend. In particular, why would you stoop to, to, to dating somebody who is, maybe is a profession Christian, but they're not growing? Maybe they're not a profession Christian at all. Why would you expend the energy and the time and the emotion in that person if ultimately, if you were a Christ follower, you shouldn't consider marrying them in the first place? Why would you do that? It makes no sense. In my 10 plus, about 10 years of, of youth ministry, I can tell you, girl after girl and boy after girl, boy coming in my office, weeping and crying because they broke up with their boyfriend or girlfriend, uh, and, and some who then got married to that particular person. Uh, they were married, and they said, Trey, I wish I would have listened to you. And I said, yes, you should have listened to God, not me, because that's what God says. So young people, don't date outside the family of God. It, it just doesn't make any sense. Um, so uh, moving on to address another group of people. Maybe you find yourself today, and you are a Christian. You are a believer, but you are married to somebody who is not. Uh, regardless of all the ways that that can happen, what should you do? Well, first of all, the Bible tells us that you should not divorce them. Paul makes it really clear in 1 Corinthians 7. You're a Christian, your spouse is not. Don't divorce them for that reason. It's okay. God will bless your marriage. Second, win them without words. Win them over to Christ without words. Notice 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 and 2 gives us a blueprint as to how to handle this situation. Listen to the word of God. Wives, he says, Wives, in the same way, submit yourself to your own husband so that if any of them do not believe the word, that is, they're not Christians, they might be won over without words. How? By the behavior of their wives, he says, when they see the purity and reverence of your lives. So don't divorce them. Win them over without words. Um, I think that this principle played out in my own family life. Uh, My mom uh, became a Christian, I believe, when she was a teenager. Um, And so she had been a Christian for quite a while. She met my dad in junior college, and eventually they ended up getting married. My dad uh, grew up uh, at a Lutheran church, and so he was a a religious guy. Uh, But as he would tell you, he was not a Christian. He did not know Christ personally. He trusted in in his own works, his own morality, his own goodness. And so for years, until I was about 10 years old, um, my dad uh, was not a believer, and my mom was a believer. Uh, To make a long story short, we moved churches, he heard the gospel, he got saved. He got saved, my sister got saved. I was the last to get saved because I was stubborn. But eventually, I I, I gave my life to Christ as well. And and so I have to ask, how did that happen? Well, I think in part, um, part of it was my mom obeying the words of Peter here in 1 Peter chapter 3, winning him without a word. So, what we've seen thus far, right? Having seen how the people of God were breaking their covenant with God by marrying unbelievers, Malachi now shows us how certain men were breaking their covenant with their wives in verses 13 through 16. And what we're going to see first is the consequence of doing that, and that is their prayers were not being answered. He moves on to show us this defensive cross-examination, right? They ask, "How how have we done this? 
followed by God naming the crime of unbiblical divorce, followed finally by God commanding the men of the covenant community to be faithful to their spouses. So we get into this second confirmation in chapter 2, verses 13 through 16. Let's see the consequence first. Unlike the former section where the consequence is given after the crime, here God begins with the consequences for these men who had broken their covenant with the wife of their youth. And that is their prayers were not being answered. Notice verse 13. Another thing you do, says the Lord, you flood the Lord's altar with tears. You weep and wail because he no longer looks with favor on your offerings or accepts them with pleasure from your hands. So these men who had divorced their wife to pursue pagan unbelieving wives were apparently not having their prayers answered. God was not looking with favor upon their offerings. And they apparently didn't know why. And they were upset by this. They were uh, flooding the altar with, with crocodile tears, right? They were upset. They were weeping. They were wailing because they were missing out on the blessing. They knew something was wrong. But they didn't know what it was, right? They flooded the altar with tears. While some people think that they, they were genuinely upset, these were tears of repentance. I think Malachi is, is describing here what I would call hypocritical repentance or worldly tears. They were just upset because they were missing out on the blessing of God, but they didn't want to obey God. Which reminds me of a scene from a, from a movie that I want to show you right now as Glenn gets it ready. Um, it's one of my favorite um, slapstick comedies, if you know the kind of comedy that I'm talking about, slapstick comedy. Comedies, and the movie is called Oscar. You probably have never heard of it before. My wife introduced it to me, and I'm grateful for it because it's one of my favorite movies. It's hilarious if you like that kind of, uh, of humor. Sylvester Stallone is the main character, and I just want to set the scene for you so you can understand it. Um, his daughter was caught uh, uh, dating a man that he uh, did not approve of. And so there's a conversation between daughter and father as he uh, discovers what she had been doing and uh, what he was going to do about it. And there's a scene where she... Uh, begins to wail and to weep and to cry uh, in, in an effort to manipulate her dad to get him to do what she wants. Now notice what happens when she doesn't get her way. Let's watch the scene if we can. Say, how'd you find out about us anyway? The mug was just here asking me for your hand in marriage. Oh. <laughs> what are you crying for? Because I'm so happy. I thought he left me for good. You should be so lucky. Don't say that about the man I'm going to marry. You're not going to marry that monkey. You're going to marry the man I picked out for you, Bruce Underwood III. I don't want to marry Bruce Underwood. He's a snob and he's got pimples. A couple of dates with you and that'll clear up. Go ahead. <laughs> insult me. Mother and I send you to the finest Catholic schools. And look at you. A disgrace. You look like you just stepped off the runway of Mitski's. I'm a modern 30s woman. It's the music you kids listen to today. King Crosby, Camp Calloway. Don't think I haven't heard the lyrics to Minnie the Moochie. Oh, I'm so stifled in this house. I want to swim the English Channel. I want to go shopping in Paris. I want to lay on the beach in Honolulu. Do whatever you want. Just don't leave this room. <laughs> ah! <laughs> the Fenucci's is here. 
so that's how I envision these men, right? They're coming to the altar of the Lord, and they're not getting what they want from their heavenly Father. So they're throwing a hissy fit. They're kicking and screaming and crying. But when he doesn't give them what they want, they just they stare in rebellious defiance, the consequence of unanswered prayer. And that, that leads us to a, a second principle for our morning. And that principle is this, marital sin. Marital sin hinders our prayer life, right? We see that very clearly from this passage. These men were pursuing, uh, d- divorcing their wives, and God wasn't answering their prayers. And we see the parallel in the New Testament. In First Peter chapter 3, verse 7, God speaks specifically to husbands this time. He says, husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as the weaker partner and as heirs with you in the gracious gift of life. So that, here's the reason why, so that nothing will hinder your prayers. So men, specifically, if we are not considerate of our wives, if we don't treat them with respect, if we don't consider them as our equal, if we don't enjoy life with them, then our prayers also will be hindered. And I imagine that God gives equal opportunity here for the same to be said of wives, right? So, if we feel like our prayer life is not functioning well, if our prayers are hitting the ceilings, one of the reasons might be we need to ask, how are we treating our spouse? Because sin in the marriage hinders prayer. And we see that here in the consequence in verse 13. Having seen the consequence of unanswered prayers, we get the kind of common uh, cross-examination of these men. Notice the, the, the front end of verse 14. You ask, says Malachi, putting words in the, uh, the mouth of these men, why, right? So notice, Malachi says, God no longer looks with favor on your offerings. He no longer accepts them with pleasure from their hand. And, he, and the people, these men say, well, why not? Why is that? They're ignorant. They don't, they don't know why. We see the spiritual insensitivity of God's people. They're highlighted as in spite of their covenant blessings being withheld and their prayers being unanswered, they still seem seemingly unaware of the reason why. Well, Malachi doesn't waste any time to tell them, right? Notice the tail end of verse 14, moving into verse 15, as the crime is spelled out for them in black and white. And that is the crime of impermissible divorce. Notice verse 14, the tail end. It is because the Lord, so Malachi is going to tell them, it is because the Lord is the witness between you and the wife of your youth. You, he tells them, have been unfaithful to her, though she is your partner, the wife of your marriage covenant. Here in this one verse, we learn quite a bit about marriage. First of all, God is the witness of all marriage. Did you notice that? He says, God is the witness between you and the wife of your youth. Friends, God sees not only your marriage covenant, but he sees your marriage, all of it, in black and white. He sees my marriage. He sees your marriage. He cares about marriage. He is the witness between them and the wife of their youth. That is why when I do weddings, I say something like this. We are here today before what? God, right? We are here today before God and these witnesses, right? Because God is the witness and the keeper of marriage. Second, to divorce one in favor of another is to be in the, the, word, uh, the Hebrew word here, unfaithful. This Hebrew word, unfaithful, that God uses to these men who are divorcing their first wives in order to pursue pagan, unbelieving wives, it literally means to break a prior covenant or a prior agreement. Um, there was a story of a man who was a, a, prof- a professing Christian, 
in the church that I was in in Dallas. And without giving too much of the detail, uh, this was uh, one of the families in the church uh, that seemed to be very solid. As far as we, we knew, the marriage was, was good. I had three of their students in my youth ministry. And so I was, you know, of course, uh, involved in the life of the students. And uh, one of our elders, who I was pretty good friends with, came to me one day and uh, basically disclosed uh, what was going on. And that was that the husband had been cheating on the wife uh, in favor of, of another woman. This woman was uh, not a Christian, did not profess to be a Christian, and he was leaving uh, his family, uh, his children, and his wife, uh, who professed to be a Christian, in favor of another. And he went on to, to share with me briefly that he would be doing counseling, that he would be trying to intervene, of course, to uh, encourage this man not to do that. Um, I don't know how this scenario played out, to be honest, because we left Dallas before before uh, I found out. But um, you know, that's, that's the kind of scenario that's happening, that was happening here to the nation of Israel, right? That's exactly what was going on. Third, marriage is a covenant. Did you notice that? God spells out the nature of marriage. He says, the wife of your marriage covenant. That's an important idea because oftentimes today, people think of marriage in terms of contract as opposed to covenant. So how can you tell, just a little diagnostic test for you, for those of you who are married, how can you tell if you pursue and consider your marriage as a covenant or as a contract? Well, there's a wonderful article that I will give you on the way out that you can pick up on the way out by, the, by a man by the name of Dave Willis. And he gives us uh, about six things that you can think about to know if your marriage is a covenant or, or if it's a contract. Number one, he says in a covenant marriage, you will be focused on your, on your spouse's rights. Your spouse's rights. In a contract marriage, you will be focused primarily on your own. Number two, in a covenant marriage, he says, you choose to love and respect your spouse even when they don't, quote, deserve it. But in a covenant marriage, functionally, you give your spouse the treatment that you believe he or she deserves. In a covenant marriage, he says, there is no keeping score of each other's mistakes. Sounds like 1 Corinthians 13, right? But in contract marriage, there is no forgetting each other's mistakes. He says, in a covenant marriage, couples work with mutual respect respect through disagreement. But in contract marriages, individuals try to win the argument. Number five, in a covenant marriage, he says couples believe that marriage is primarily about serving, while in a contract marriage, couples tend to believe that marriage is more about what they get. Number six, in a covenant marriage, couples believe that marriage is a sacred partnership, while in contract marriages, they believe it's simply a legal partnership. And so we have to begin to ask ourselves, those of us who are married, Do we think of marriage in terms of covenant or in terms of contract? Well, as we move into verses 15 and 16, the tail end of this section, we come to what is really the most, if not the most, one of the most difficult uh, sections in all of the Old Testament Hebrew Bible to translate. And so if you're reading your translation, it's probably going to sound different than mine. And it's probably going to sound different than your neighbor's. And it's going to sound different from your neighbor on your other side. Because the Hebrew is really difficult to translate. But what we get in verses 15 and 16, regardless of what translation you go with, is that Malachi is giving these men who had or were considering being unfaithful to their spouse reasons why they should not. In verse 15, I see a couple of possible translations, and I think you can see them on, on the screen here. First of all is, is, the, is the NIV. Uh, the first of all is the NIV. It would say something like this. Has not the Lord made them one? Has not the Lord made them one? In flesh and spirit they are his. And why one? 
because he was seeking a godly offspring. That's the NIV. So if it reads that way, it means something like this. Malachi is saying, listen, don't you remember when God made Adam and Eve? It was the ideal marriage, right? It was his example, the prototype, pointing out that God made the spouses one flesh in that marriage. And so it's not intended to be separated. It it could read that way. A second option, and I, I probably prefer this option, is the New American Standard. It would read like this. But but not one has done so who has a remnant of the Spirit. And what did that one do while he was seeking a godly offspring? That's the New American Standard. Uh, If it reads like this, then Malachi is arguing that any man, that any believing man with with the influence of the Holy Spirit upon him would not divorce his wife in favor favor of a a heathen woman because he desires godly offspring. Either way, whichever way you cut it, God emphasizes that one of the main purposes in marriage is raising godly children. And when men in this particular context divorce their Christian so-called wife and bring in a pagan unbeliever into the house, that purpose in marriage is thwarted, at least in part. So the section then ends at the tail end of verse 15 and into verse 16 with a a twofold command. We can't miss this uh, twice-repeated command of God to these men. And that is, they are to be on guard, and they are to be faithful. Notice, so be on your guard, Malachi says, and do not be unfaithful to the wife of your youth. So the first thing he tells them is to watch their marriage, to be on guard. It's common covenant language, and it means to watch carefully. It's, it's the picture of a nightman, of, of, a, of a night watcher on, on, on a castle, who's vigilantly kind of watching the countryside to protect that particular city or castle from incoming invaders. It's the idea of of watching vigilantly for things that could be harmful to you. But what Malachi calls these men and you and I to protect is not a city, but our marriages, right? He says, be on guard, protect your marriage. But the dissolving of our marriages in unbiblical divorce, he says, is do not be unfaithful to your wife. He gives another reason in verse 16. Notice what it says. The man who hates and divorces his wife, says the Lord, the God of Israel, does violence to the one he should protect, says the Lord Almighty. So he repeats the refrain. So be on your guard and do not be unfaithful. The idea here in verse 16 is simply this, that to divorce your spouse in favor of another is to hate them. And it's akin, he says, to doing violence to the union of the the marriage bond that God brought together. So that leads us to one final lesson as we close. Be protective of your marriage and be faithful to your spouse. I think that's a clear-cut principle that we see from this text. First of all, be protective of your marriage. There was a, a, a wife who was sitting and having breakfast with her, uh, her husband, and she began to feel a little insecure about their relationship, so she began to ask them a few questions. She, she, she prodded him, what, what if something happened to me? What, what if I died? Would you marry again? He thought about it hard and said, yes, I probably would. Then she asked him, well, would you bring her to live in, in this house? And would she sleep in our bed? Well, he said, I haven't, I haven't really thought about it, starting to sweat at this point. I haven't really thought about it, but I, I guess I probably would. And so she was angered by that, and she probed a little further, and she asked him one more question. Well, well would you let her use my golf clubs? Asked the wife, to which he responded, no, because she's left-handed. Uh-oh. <laughs> this man was not protecting his marriage, right? 
we get this twofold repeated command. Protect your marriage, Malachi says. Protect your marriage. We can do this in a lot of ways, right? Of course, just spending as much time with our spouse as possible, having regular conversation with them. Date nights are helpful. Uh, making the marriage the center of your family life rather than the kids and their activities is probably a, a pretty good idea. Um, the thing about marriages is that they typically only have two gears. You're either going forward or you're going backward, right? You're, you're in drive or you're in reverse. There's typically no neutral. And the tendency is for us to go in reverse, to drift apart. And so maybe, maybe you, fa- you find yourself there. You say, we've, we've drifted well apart, and you've just kind of accepted that. I think Malachi says, protect your marriage. Don't, don't, don't accept that to both of you. Another way to guard your marriage is to periodically read a marriage book together. Go to, uh, go to a marriage conference, watch some DVDs, re- read a book. Do, you can even do some what I would call maintenance counseling, which is where you go to a counselor or a pastor or maybe just a godly couple that you respect, not to fix your marriage, but just to make it better, to learn from them. Uh, by the way, on the way out, there's another article I want you to pick up. It's a Family Life article. It's entitled, 10 Ideas for Protecting Your Marriage. Um, wonderful ideas, so pick it up on the way out. So he says, guard your marriage. And then the last admonition is, be faithful to your spouse. Be faithful to your spouse. Of course, he means, uh, first and foremost, be faithful sexually. But there's, there's so much more than that, right? We need to be faithful to them emotionally. That is, we need to allow ourselves to, to not be emotionally filled by a member of the opposite sex. They need to be our our main kind of emotional um, uh, outlet, if you will. Um, It means being so sexually. It means being faithful to them emotionally. It means being faithful to, to, to try to get to know them and meet some of their deepest needs. So if you're married, be faithful to your spouse. Well, friends, when, if, you are married, and when, if you get to your 50th anniversary, and you have your friends, and you have your family, and your kids, and probably your grandkids, and maybe even your great grandkids around you, and you're celebrating, right? And you're talking with your spouse on the front porch at the end of the night. May you be like Bessie, right? And say to your spouse, you know, fill in the blank, I'm real proud of you. I love you. I'm not tired of you. And don't be like Ted, who says, well, so-and-so, I'm really tired of you, right? May you be more like Bessie and not so much like Ted. May God give us the grace to be faithful to our covenant with him by being faithful to our covenant with our spouses. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this word to us that is uh, over 2,000 years old, and yet it resonates in our hearts and lives today because it is your truth. Father, give us grace for when we failed you, as all of us husbands and wives uh, have failed you and have failed uh, our spouse in many ways. We know that there is forgiveness and grace, and we revel in that. We are broken people, and yet you are the great healer. You are the great physician, and you do that even in the midst of our, our marriages. And so we pray that you would do that, that we would guard and protect our marriages, uh, whether we're married or whether we're not, and that we would be faithful to our spouses, even our future spouses in every way. We ask in the name of Christ. And God's people said, amen. Guys, thanks for being here. Before we leave, before we leave, here's what we're going to do. Uh, I'm going to ask, uh, yeah, we're going to pass out some, uh, some voting ballots. So we're voting on two uh, new deacon nominees, Jason Hamrick and Glenn Kinnick. Uh If you're a member, if you're not a member, take one, vote. We want your input. Uh, and when you're done voting, you can be free to, uh, to go.